When President Lyndon Johnson was sworn in on Air Force One after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, his 24 years in Congress in both the House and the Senate and his two years as vice president to JFK resulted in his becoming the most politically experienced president in U.S. history. Most historians will agree that his vast experience in the halls of Congress gave him skills to usher some of the most controversial initiatives in and in through to law. His only one and a half terms as president included six of the most politically divided and tumultuous years in American history, as the country fought battles in both Vietnam and the civil rights movement reached its peak here at home. LBJ successfully passed his Great Society Plan that created Medicare and Medicaid, created the food stamps program, created Head Start. He passed the most comprehensive gun control initiatives in history to that point. He created the public broadcasting system, established the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities, passed sweeping immigration reform and education reforms, to say nothing of his shepherding of the landmark Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act through a too often hostile Congress. President Joe Biden's political experience before being sworn into office last week makes Linda Johnson look like an underclassman. While Johnson spent 26 years in the halls of Congress, Biden's 36 years as senator from Delaware earned him not only experience in negotiating with legislators, but widespread praise and admiration from his colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And during his eight years as vice president, often his primary role was being called on to help usher President Obama's legislative agenda through an increasingly divided legislative branch. His short stint as a county commissioner in Delaware before his election to the Senate actually began in January of 1971. So altogether, President Biden racked up a full 50 years, a full half century of experience leading, collaborating, and compromising with those who disagreed with him. 50 full years before he was sworn in as president. Were he alive today, perhaps LBJ would be jealous of President Biden's 50 years of hands-on training compared to his mere 28. What's almost certain, though, is that LBJ would be very unlikely to envy the conditions under which Biden now finds himself leading. The main thrust of the civil rights movement and the heat of the Vietnam War caused anger and division here in the 60s and 70s, and that draws strong parallels to the America of 2021. But several factors at play today give many a reason to believe that conditions now are far worse than they were then. And some factors today are, in fact, holdovers from LBJ's time in office that might not have actually been solved as well in the third quarter of the 1900s as President Johnson believed. Despite all the historic accomplishments and life-changing initiatives that LBJ put into place, most of which we still couldn't do without today, The fact remains that Johnson's term in office was the beginning of the end for Democrats in the South and began a realignment of the political parties in America. I'm Clay Aiken. Dr. Jonathan Metzl is the Frederick B. Rentschler Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, and he's an expert in the study of some of the starkest political and sociological divisions in America today. In his most recent book, Dying of Whiteness, He researches and uncovers how racial resentments, some as old as President Biden's county commissioner gavel, have continued to fester and often have led to not only dramatic political divisions, but also have had some pretty ironic consequences for those who hold them. This week, Politicon welcomes Dr. Jonathan Metzl to discuss how some of these long-festering problems might be addressed. If President Biden hopes to unite the country, He'll have to not only reach out to these voters who feel he doesn't represent them, he'll have to teach his party how to do it, too. If he does, are there even any ears left open to listening? And how do we heal these rifts between our fellow Americans and rebuild trust? Are the divisions really along racial lines, or are they policy-based? And how the heck are we going to get along? Yes. Hello. Did you get, are you in, you're in Nashville, right? Well, you know, actually I'm in a mystic Connecticut right now. I've, it's been kind of, been, oh. been kind of a vagabond for this uh, pandemic. So I've been kind of going place oh, to place. Oh, so you, but you're still able to do your, you're still able to do what you need to for Vanderbilt. Correct. From yeah. Wherever, right? Teaching remotely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to ask if you got snow because we finally got a little snow this uh, last night in, in Raleigh and I thought maybe Nashville got hit with a little bit too. Oh no, no, I, um, we don't. I had, um, I had, you remember Winnebago man? Um, he was like 95 white supremacists ago, but 
he blew up my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> Do you have a chart of them in your office oh somewhere? My God. But yeah, the guy who the guy who blew up downtown Nashville, he he uh, there was oh right there was damage to my building, so <laughs> that's why I've had to like move around. It's been crazy. Oh wait, recently? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh 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 oh. Now you said ninety five white supremacists ago, but you were counting all the ones yeah. at the Capitol. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about the the you're ca- ta- you're talking about the explosion that just happened in Nashville exactly. in December. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was right near your building. Yeah, it's like a block away. So they kind of messed up our elevator and stuff. So I just, I headed, oh. I headed east. <laughs> it's been a, it, did they ever figure, did they ever figure out what his motive was? Was it, was it supremacist based or was he, I know I read something about his girlfriend said he had some issues. What, what was the motivation? There? Who knows? I mean, you know, we, we had a congressperson talk about Jewish lasers from space today. So I feel like it's, a, we're just on a scale right now of, <laughs> of things. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think it was something about 5G apparently. So I don't know. Oh, so a little QAnon-y. Yeah, a little QAnon-y. Okay, so I think it's totally fascinating that your, your, well, I won't just say it's your title, it's your research interest and your work at Vanderbilt combines sociology and psychiatry. So it's not just sociology, it's also medical psychiatry too. It, that does That's not common, is it? Like, do anybody, is anybody else do sociology and psychiatry at the same time, but you? There are people who do it, but they don't. I mean, I, my work is kind of through the lens of critical race studies also. And so I, I do it in a, in a very, in a very particular way, but there are certainly a lot of people who are sociology and psychiatry, but not, not exactly the same way that I do it, thankfully. (laughs) Right. Well, I would I would certainly assume sociology and psychology would go together, but just mm. the medical part of it also, because you're you know you're the head of the medical department too. So yeah. I mean, it's a it's a it's a very interesting combination. What what makes the socio the psychiatry part so important? I mean, you're you're not necessarily, or are you studying the the mental illness of of some people, or are you or do you believe that some of this is mental illness or you think it's something else? Well, I mean, I've, I've been studying this the issues linked to mental illness for a long time. And so I got to the book Dying of Whiteness from a project before called The Protest Psychosis that looked at the race-based overdiagnosis of schizophrenia. And I was also studying mental illness narratives around mass shootings. And so mental illness is always some kind of part of, of what I do uh, in the Dying of Whiteness project. Certainly, all the work I did on gun suicide, I, I think that that training was very, very much at the foreground, um, just because I, I was dealing with with a lot of questions that were at the nexus of kind of gun rights and whiteness and and this question of why would somebody why would somebody harm themselves? And so certainly in, in that project, I, I think it, it was probably the gun suicide part that was the most psychiatrically inflected, but I've done other projects that are that are much more about mental illness, whereas in dying of whiteness, the argument I'm trying to make is actually that the mental illness is is the framework. It's the society. It's not the individual brain. Yeah. So where did it start? Do you know? I mean, are you able to pinpoint when this death began? Do you mean um, the, which part the dying of whiteness? But like yeah. when this, you know, in the in the introduction to the show, I kind of drew some parallels between. Biden's challenges and his strengths as a uh, former legislator and and LBJ's strengths as a former legislator and the what he dealt with in the 60s and 70s um, is part of as any of that you know the fact that Democrats lost the South sort of consistently after LBJ that was when we realigned the parties is 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 this a holdover is some of the stuff we're seeing now a holdover of resentment from that period or like when did this issue really begin to come to the forefront again? There have always been narratives like this in American society. It goes back to the period, certainly after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, when working class white people had every every incentive in the world to work with newly freed slaves to build land and increase their wages and be more productive. Um, and then somebody started telling them, don't don't work with people who aren't white. You'll just be giving away what, what Du Bois called your wage of whiteness. And so we've got a couple centuries of this narrative playing out in, in this country. And it, and it rears up at times where social or demographic change seems possible. And so it comes up during 
not ironically, the civil rights era and now and Black Lives Matter and other times. And so we've had a, a version of this story kind of floating around in the ether of America, not just the South, but America for, for quite a long time. The, the issue now is just how central it is to our politics and our and our and our policies. And so what was probably once a, a fringe position or a regional position um, now is really the framework for our national policies. And so really that's the story of dying of whiteness is how anxieties that, that really were, had their, their biggest thrust in the South and had been there for a while, but were certainly tapped into and exacerbated by, by the Trump campaign, by disinformation, by social media, but had kind of played on fault lines that had been there for, for quite some time. Really, those stories became stories that, that became American stories. And so the, the rejection of the Affordable Care Act in the South became a national policy under Trump. Uh, the horrible education policies in, in the South became the framework for what uh, Betsy DeVos did. The uh, approach to um, taxes and tax cuts and all these things, underfunding infrastructure, these were all kind of stories that I think people uh, in the East were uh, and the West were okay with as long as they were in the South. And what the Trump administration did really was nationalize those policies. So my book starts in 2010, 2011, 2012, and I wrote it as a warning sign saying, look, these policies have worked their way into the state houses of, of, of certain red states and it's destroying the states. And so I, I was arguing at the time, let's not do this. And instead we did the opposite, that, that this narrative of Racial resentment, as I call it, was such a powerful motivator that that it really has it swept our nation, it took over an entire political party, and and we're still obviously struggling with with it um, in the present day during the pandemic. So wh- why why is there so much resentment? I mean, I'm going to ask a few questions here that I think most people believe they already know the answer to, but uh, <laughs> you've done the research, so I want to I want to play dumb a little bit and and make sure that. I am asking questions like a dumb person here. Talk to me like I'm stupid here. Um, wh- wh- why is there so much resentment um, in the first place? It's what are a, they resentful of? It's a hard question. It, it's a hard question. It's actually not a, not a straightforward question. It's not an easy question. I'm, I, I, I'll give you a, a, a vignette, and, and then I'll explain that vignette to help explain that answer, if that's okay. I, 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 was, doing research. Yeah, please. I was doing research around the Affordable Care Act at, at a time when People in Tennessee were really struggling with their with their health with their health care, and I was doing interviews with white and black men who really needed health care. And here, along it was 2011, 2012, 2013, came this almost mana from heaven, the Affordable Care Act that was going to help them pay their medical bills, help them pay for their prescription drugs, help them uh, get access to better doctors, more choice of doctors than they would have had before. And, and there were a number of, of white men I spoke with um, who initially, initially when the ACA was first coming out, were very excited about it. They thought, this thing is great. Um, this thing is going to help me and I've never had coverage before. So maybe now I can get checkups for my kids. They were really excited about it. And then as things evolved, this what I call this narrative of racial resentment took over. And I'll never forget, we were doing a, a focus group in a really low income area outside of Nashville with white men. And I said, you know, who, how do you feel about this thing, the Affordable Care Act? And, and one of the men who was on oxygen, uh, he had um, very bad uh, lung and, and, and liver disease. And he said, I know this thing could save my life, but as he said it, there's no way I'm signing up for a program where my tax dollars would benefit, as he said, Mexicans and welfare queens. This idea that mm-hmm. even though this program is going to help me, I'm not going to sign up for it um, because it also is going to help undeserving immigrants and minorities as I see it. And for me, that was that was really the story of the book in a nutshell, which was um, here's a man who could have benefited from this program and would have, but he felt like the system was going to be usurped and undeserving others, racial, ethnic others were going to get. Uh, Do you think he felt that that they would get more benefit than he would? Or he just didn't want them to have it at all. And people, I mean, I, I did all these interviews and people would say, I, I'm worried that those those other people are having too many kids or immigrants are pouring over the over the borders. And so when I really, really unpacked what they were saying, I mean, certainly part of it was just blaming pants on fire racism, no doubt about that. 
But there also was this uh, this underlying fear that there was only so much healthcare, only so much resource, any kind of resource, and that because other people were cutting in front of them in line, they weren't going to get what was theirs. And so that's why I say this is a complicated story because certainly um, I'm not in any way excusing racism. I heard a lot of horrible things, but I would also say that they lived in a state where resources were incredibly limited and people in the same socioeconomic class were having to fight for resources the way now people are fighting for vaccines, for example, if you can imagine it. And so in a way at the time, resources to this man and many other people felt very scarce. And, and, and I say this because of two things. Number one is there, it was um, pumped in night and day. Um, other people are going to come take your stuff. I mean, this is what Fox News was telling them and, and Trump was telling them. It was this idea that there's only so much stuff and you're not going to get it if we don't stand up for it. But the irony, of course, is the reason there was the austerity in the first place um, was because of GOP policies that undercut the infrastructure, took away money for healthcare and roads and bridges and schools and, and gave them to uh, wealthy people and corporations in the form of tax cuts. And so there was scarcity. I guess the point I'm trying to make is part of it was racism and part of it was this guy responding to real scarcity that was caused by the policies of the politicians that he supported and voted for. But because they had coded these policies in racial terms, he, he was in a way looking to people at his same so, so socioeconomic level when really this austerity was coming because of because of these policies that that he supported, even though they were literally killing him. Uh, so when you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development and and learning and making yourself better, right? And it can be really hard to find time to sit down and read and learn more about the things that really interest you. So I got to tell you about this really secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. It's this really cool app. Um, it solves the problem for you, and I totally recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique, and it works on your phone, your tablet, or on your computer, the web browser, um, you know, pretty much most of the electronics you have, right? Uh, it takes the best key takeaways, like the need to know information, sort of the cliff's, no cliffs notes, the, the important parts um, from thousands of nonfiction books, and it condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I ain't gonna lie to you, a few times on this podcast, I have probably used Blinkist to read the books of the guests, but don't tell them I said that. Anyway, Blinkist is made for busy and successful people just like you, you know, who want to get the main points of the book quickly so you can start using that information right away. Like I said, I've done it. And it's got an audio feature. So Blinkist makes it totally easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime, in the car, wherever you are. Um, 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. And it's got a massive growing library. Everything from self-help to business, health, history, politics, all that stuff. Uh, along with some of the latest titles from bestseller lists and classic nonfiction titles that you always meant to read. You know, those biography, like that long biography of, uh, you know, that political figure that you never got around to reading. They'll have that. Um, you know, I like it because, like I said, they've got great books on there. Two of my recent favorites, um, The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss and the Alexander Hamilton book by Ron Chernow, which was turned into the musical Hamilton. Um, you know, I imagine Lin-Manuel Miranda read the entire book, but he probably could have gotten the crux of the story right here from Blinkist. Um, you get an, if, you, if you go to Blinkist, you'll get an unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash heck to try it for free for seven days and save 25% off your new prescription. Let's try that again. Save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's Blinkist.com slash heck to start your free seven-day trial, prescription or subscription, whichever you prefer. And if you also, and you also save 25% off, but only when you sign in at Blinkist.com slash heck. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Is that, is that a, I mean, certainly part of that story um, results from the types of media that this particular person is digesting, um, the stories that he's hearing on 
whatever outlet he's listening to. But is there a is you 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 use the word coding it in racial coding the policies in racial racial word ways? Is that a is that a fault of progressives at times? I mean, mm-hmm. are, should we should we be more diligent about not making policies racial um, or or presenting them along racial lines at all? I mean, has that I had a I, reason I ask is I had a conversation last night with a, a good friend of mine who's um, deeply involved in the education systems here in North Carolina and, and yours is, you're talking about medical, but part of our conversation, we shifted towards, you know, how so much emphasis has been placed on making sure that funding is provided for inner city schools um, that are failing uh, over the past 15, 20 years, which is, in my opinion, a very, very valuable and important thing to do. But there has not been much emphasis on putting just as much funding uh, and just as much resource on poor white rural schools. Um, and, you know, you, some, might, some might argue that a lack of education in some of these predominantly white rural areas may have resulted in, in some people in those areas being not as good at critical thinking, not as good at knowing when they're being lied to. <laughs> um, I guess I, I guess my question is, would it be better to to f- not focus our resources, not focus our policy initiatives on any one particular race, but make sure that they are equally spread amongst inner city populations and rural populations as well? Um, does that fuel resentment? Do people who are in the rural areas feel like money from the government in general is going to anybody but them? It's a it's a loaded question, and I want to give you two parts of an answer because I think it's a really Take important question, and it's one we should be thinking about. Uh, on one hand, in, in my research, in Dying of Whiteness and research I'm doing now, I look at healthcare reform, I look at gun policy, I look at education policy, and I look at economic and tax policy. And I can say pretty much without fail that all of the GOP policies that I look at have disproportionately horrible effects on communities of color, often by design. And so in a way, there is an important point to be made that a lot of these policies and also a lot of democratic policies, if you look at the history of, you know, democratic cities and places like that, that in a way there is a disproportionate effect on communities of color that needs to be called out and called by name and rectified. Uh, And I think, and so part of it is I think that just to level everything out on one hand is to not recognize that, um, that there really is a, a a kind of form of truth and reconciliation that needs to happen because of the disparate effects that this has led to in terms of inequities. Now that being said, but, let me. But I, is yeah. it? Is it? Well, well I, I do want to let you do the other thing, but I want to clarify that first point. But is it not true also that these these GOP policies and sometimes true also Democratic policies, while they are hurting communities of color, they're not helping the poor white communities either. It's not like those folks are getting benefits. At the at the expense of communities of color, I mean, they're both getting screwed over. Am I not right? <laughs> no, that's that's the whole point of my book is that the, that what white people yeah. are getting is it, just to quote Du Bois again, they're getting a psychological wage, but they're not getting a real wage. So what what they're getting right. is policies that are terrible for terrible for them. In the book, I quantify the effects of GOP policies on white lifespans. GOP uh, policies in many states are as dangerous as secondhand smoke or not wearing a seatbelt in your car or asbestos. They they literally shorten white people's lifespan. So I'm very clear about that in the book, that these policies are horrible for everybody, including for their supporters. There's no doubt about that. Um, so I think that, that that's true. But I also think if you asked initially about progressives, and I, I am critical of, of a lot of progressive frameworks in, in the book also for not recognizing what they're what they're stepping into. And so I think that I think that the, the two parts, number one, is when you say something like Medicare for All, for example, it makes a lot of sense if you don't know the 50-year history of resistance to government-sponsored health care in a place like Tennessee. So on mm-hmm. the ground in Tennessee, watching the slogan Medicare for All, 
land like a lead balloon. And, and I and, and I thought, man, there's a better way to say it for this framework, but you have to understand the history of why why people might resent government sponsored healthcare. Now, it's not that people don't want healthcare, it's that there's a way to say it if you know your audience. And so in many audiences, particularly in rural states, a slogan like, and I'm, I'm just using Medicare for all. Now, I, I understand that's very contentious, but, uh, but, but it's kind of like, oh, you're not for that. What's wrong with you? You're not for that. But you don't understand the history you're stepping into. And so number one is I think sometimes progressives can, um, and I'm including myself, be rather ahistorical about saying, um, here's here's the slogan, here's the idea, not recognizing well, history. Right, well, defund the police wasn't our best moment either. Yeah, um, and, and so that's part of it. Um, and, and the other thing is, I just think that we do a really crappy job of, of selling the fact that our policies will benefit rural white communities. And so I think that oftentimes we say, well, what's wrong with you? If you don't vote for healthcare, that's voting against your own self-interest. But there's no attempt to understand how for example, the rural white communities in the South talk about healthcare. It's actually really different. And so if your goal is to get the most people signed up in your healthcare plan, or the most people to wear masks, or the most people to get vaccines, um, it's important for you to recognize that it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all fit all kind of approach. And so I do think that we there's no counter-narrative to the Obamacare is going to come take all your everything. There was no counter narrative. And, and it was frustrating for me because people would have benefited from having Medicaid expansion, for example, in, ten, in a place like Tennessee during the pandemic. But, but it, wasn't, it wasn't framed in a way that, was, uh, that, was, that met their rhetoric. The, fr- the framing aside, though, do, do rural, um, I'm going to say rural whites, but I mean, obviously, the problem is goes beyond just the rural areas, but do they believe that Democrats care about them? I mean, it's, it's, it's it, you know, rural is such a very broad term right now. And, and the whole, everything. Do white a, people believe that Democrats <laughs> care about them? Well, I think it's, everything's a mismatch right now because of social media. We have neighbors. You could have a progressive neighbor living next to a QAnon neighbor right now. So I think the traditional mm-hmm. regional boundaries because of social media, because of the way we saw this in the, uh, in the election, even that it just we're a mishmash right now, and so I think their traditional boundaries um, do not do not um, do not hold up. But I would say that the Democrats, I, I, I've seen firsthand the way that we have lost the messaging war about explaining how our policies might be beneficial, and in a way, there's no counter narrative to the the minute the, the minute the minute the message. If you're explaining, you're losing, though, right? I mean, isn't isn't it at a gut level for a lot of voters of all races? Who do I trust more? Yeah, and these issues. Who do I think cares about me? Yeah, and whether you're expl- able to explain it like a champ. I mean, <laughs> Bill Clinton was the champion explainer, right? God, God bless him for that. But so is Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is a brilliant explainer, but people don't seem to, or at least. Average Americans, moderate to conservative-leaning Americans, were able to, or willing to trust or able to believe they could trust Bill Clinton, but not Elizabeth Warren. Granted, it were 20, 30 years later. I'm wondering if it's beyond messaging and it's more of just not being able to convince people that, as a Democrat, I care about their needs. There, there's a messaging war. Absolutely. These things are, these things are, I mean, the issues themselves become identities. A year ago, nobody cared about a mask. If you told somebody, here's a 99 cent thing that's going to save your life and save your community, nobody would have had a problem with it. No, there was no coding of masks. Masks right. came out and then they got entered into this space where all of a sudden, like guns, like ACA, like everything else, they got caught up in this machine where people were told, if you're a Republican, you're anti-mask. If you're a Democrat, you're for a mask. And 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 so, in a way, there's a machine that happens there, and you have to disrupt. If it, it, you know, we started from scratch. We started from scratch with the pandemic, also, and 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 that itself became polarized. And so, you have to understand that there are there's a there's a machine, multiple machines out there that are coding these issues. That all of a sudden, to become like, why? How does it make sense that to be a, a Republican means being against the ACA? That's that's against your own healthcare. That seems crazy, except that these issues become identities. And until you can disrupt- But it's tribal. Yeah, it's tribalism, right? It, 
completely, but I'm saying that that, that happens for, for a reason. That, that happens because of different information networks. And until you know how that works, I, again, my book shows how people were trading months and years of their lives um, for, for, these, for these tribes, for these identities. And, and that was really surprising until we hit the pandemic and now we're, and now we're understanding it much more broadly. But, but what's making them choose the tribe they're in? I mean, is that, that's, that's a huge part of it. You can choose to cheer for the Buffalo Bills, mm-hmm. and, and that's fine because if you like the Bills, then when they play a bad game, you still love them. It's okay. That's okay in sports, but in politics, it doesn't seem to be as, make as much sense, right? You can like a bad team in sports, <laughs> whether they're bad or not, but you should, if you, if the politics of, and the policies of the party that you usually support are not making your life better, uh, we probably shouldn't be supporting them still, but we do. So what makes these folks on either side uh, or of any race, choose the tribe they're in. Because if I look at the demographics myself without the scientific eye that you have, it looks to me like more and more every subsequent election, we see that more Republic, the Republican Party is becoming whiter and the Democrat Party is becoming more of color. And so, so is that a part of why people are choosing their tribes? I, I mean, it's unavoidably. I mean, I think you answered your own question right there. Unavoidably, that's true. I mean, certainly, these become these become uh, political issues and political parties become identity issues. But also, look at the issues we're fighting about: the pandemic, guns, healthcare. These are life and death issues, and so it's not just happenstance. People really feel like they're fighting, literally feel like they're fighting for, for their lives. Um, so if so if people of color believe the Democrat Party is more going is is working harder to protect them and white people, especially in the South, I mean, you look at Mississippi, which has an almost 40 percent black uh, population, 85 percent of which are registered to vote and their turnout is pretty healthy, you know, and yet a Democrat couldn't get couldn't get elected in, in Mississippi no matter what. It's not just a turnout problem. It's a fact that in places, especially in the South, voters of color are voting for Democrats and white voters en masse are voting for Republicans. How is it possible for either party to win the other, anybody away from the other party at all? How can Democrats convince white folks, we are for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a political scientist, I want to say. <laughs> so, yeah, we talked about right. Well, these. but sociology runs along those lines, right? <laughs> so, but I will say that I, I've just watched these tectonic plates move on, on, on the ground level. And so I, 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 can't, I can't say what's going to cause anybody to vote for somebody else. I understand this runs very deep. I've seen a lot of polling. You know, you think if you just watch the news or, or social media that everybody is so hopeless hopelessly uh, polarized. There, there are great polling groups like the Hidden Tribes group that find that many people are secretly centrists. Uh, and if you pull them just about attitudes, things about background checks for guns, or even something like Medicaid expansion, 80% of the people will be on some spectrum in the middle. And so part of the issue is how do you disrupt that? Because the parties don't, themselves don't want people floating toward the middle. They want that to be extreme. And so really the, 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 the game is getting people to see compromising with the other side as, as a form of treason. And, and the way, certainly in my research, that the GOP does that, no surprise, is it plays all these on all these racial anxieties. And the two main ones that I study are this narrative that Black people are going to come take your stuff. Um, and and you're going to get uh, screwed over, or that there's not going to be enough to go around when your turn comes up, and that's not fair. Those are time-tested narratives to get people away from the middle, away from compromise, and toward the extremes. And so I think really there, there's all the all the incentive in the world right now is to push people into one camp or another because the margins are so thin. And if you think about our system, where's the benefit for a compromise? Ask Liz Cheney that right now. Um, and so. Yeah, you know the the whole system is set up to polarize, and and that's what we're seeing. 
You've said several times there's not going to be enough around when their turn comes up. Why do people believe that they would be, or why would people believe automatically um, that they would be last in line? Like what would make them believe that they would not be first or, you know, somewhere in the middle? What, what, what makes these folks think that everyone else is going to get their slice of the pie before they get theirs? That, that, that theme came up a lot in my healthcare research. So a lot of white Americans would say, oh, the, and, and this is where the racism comes in, but they would say, oh, black people are going to have 10 or 12 kids and they're all going to go use up all the benefits. And by the time I get there, there's not going to be anything left for me. And people who know the book know that I've got a good number of quotes about that. Um, and, and, and certainly Trump's rhetoric played right into that, you know, but, um, Criminals but what coming. would they, what would make them think that those folks would get it first? That they wouldn't get to go first? I mean, is there is there a reason that that white Americans believe that everyone else is going to get a turn at bat before they do? I guess, um, I, n- never never mind the the portion mm-hmm. and how much is left over. Why would they believe that they wouldn't be the first in line? I guess the the question really is: Is there a power in in white grievance politics? Is there a power that that is there a power in the narrative that White people are getting screwed over by multiculturalism or critical race theory. Um, if, if there's power in that, this narrative plays into that same power. Now, we can debate whether that's factually true. Um, I, I personally think that that narrative, of course, overlooks the structural violence that's done to communities of color, which you don't see if you think you're always getting screwed over. But 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 Trump is a is a master manipulator of, of that narrative, and so. I think that I, I don't think it should be surprising that that narrative has power. What is what is critical race theory? Because it's not just lowercase letters. It's a it's a actual specific theory, is it not? What is that? I mean, that, that's a a school again. Now we're again. I'm I'm a sociologist and a psychiatrist. I I I I would not I would not answer that question for many other people who are practitioners of critical race theory. But certainly there are. The study of race and racism in this country has been driven by certain theoretical and ideological philosophical underpinnings that that, that basically study. I mean, for me, it's that I, I study racism. That's what that's what I study, and so it probably falls under the banner of, of critical race theory. But but if, but if you're going to ask Donald Trump what critical race theory is, he's going to tell you it's something being used to screw over white people. So it really depends who you ask, because obviously that's a Hot button issue right well, now. people like people like Ibram uh, Kendi have they say things like the best way to to make up. I'm going to totally get his quote wrong, but to the best way to make up for decades of systemic racism and discrimination is decades of future races, racism and discrimination. I mean, there are some people who in that world think that in, in the critical race theory world believe that the the solution to you know, 250 years of of oppression of black people in America is to oppress white people in America, and and they get a lot of they get a lot of press, they get a lot of media uh, attention at least. Um, is is that whether or not I think that's something that actually would be put into to law uh, is irrelevant. But hearing people talk about that and and seeing those types of messages given airtime on TV, does that just exacerbate some of the problem? I, I think that seems a bit strawmanish of, of anti-racist, uh, anti-racist theory, which is trying to rectify historical oppression. So I, I wouldn't summarize um, Kendi's work on anti-racism by saying that it justifies oppression of white people. Uh, and, but, but it does work as a kind of rallying cry if that's how it's being characterized and stereotyped. So I, I so it works as a rallying cry for the for the right, correct? Correct. Right. Okay. So, so what's the what's the solution? I mean, what does Biden need to do to reach out? He he, comparing him again to LBJ, he's in a in probably a worse situation in America right now. More division than even in the '60s. More uh, more tragedy than perhaps the Vietnam War with COVID. I mean, he's not got. He's got a tough job it's ahead of job. him. No LBJ that. got a lot through. Um, he got a lot passed. And a lot of that stuff, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, were things that helped all communities of color or white or white communities. Um, 
and and I would bet most of the white communities today wouldn't want to do without their Medicare or Medicaid, um, <laughs> but they hated it. Now, they hated it back then. Can Biden do it? Does he is or what does he need to do to reach out to this group of people in the South, especially who left the Democrat Party after um, LBJ and hasn't really come back? How can he reach out to them? Uh, there, it's a. I'm going to give you again two parts, and I apologize just because what you're asking. There, Go for it. There are two, par- there are two parts of it. I mean, number one is that we've got, again, a political system. If you just line up in one column, what's the incentive for people to cooperate or compromise? And on the other side, what's the what's the incentive for them to hold the party line? Um, what we don't have, unlike the 1960s, there's no incentive to compromise right now because if you compromise, you help the other party. And so people are elected to office on both parties to hold the party line, not to compromise. Judges are put into place not to compromise, but to hold ideological positions. Our social media platforms reinforce polarization up up and down. So we're living in a system right now where we have tremendous language for polarization and very little language for compromise. And I think Biden is stepping into that in in a way really against the headwinds, not just of all these horrible um, things he's facing in our country, but also mm-hmm. in a system where there, there's no there's no incentive for compromise. So I hope he can pull it off. What I argue, just based on my research, I'm somebody who does research on the ground. I think the Democrats need a massive charm offensive, almost like a voice of America for the South, um, really starting to articulate um, for people what it would mean to have economic policies that would benefit them, have them not to switch parties or anything like that, but I think that it's fair to really start having people ask, if I'm a Republican, how come my party's not giving me health care? How come my party is not giving me better schools? There's there's no counter message. The entire Republican message right now is the bad guys are out to get you. And so I, I personally think, and, and I know I'm in a minority. I love the idea of a charm offensive, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I love that idea. I mean, I think that's there's there's so much. It, everybody's everybody's arguments are against the other side yeah. instead of positive. But does that work anymore? Do pe- why do people only respond to negative ads? There's why a, there's, do and there's voters no not respond to positive? And, and right now they're not even voting. It's more like it doesn't have to be about voting. It doesn't have to be a Republican or Democrat. But there's no counter narrative to the ACA is horrible. There's no counter narrative to don't get the vaccine and don't wear a mask. We, we kind of see that territory very easily. And so I, I really think that it, it, it's not even about party, but if people in the Republican party started to say, yes, I'm a Republican, but in exchange for my support, I want better health care, something like Isn't that. Isn't there a counter narrative though? I mean, there is a counter narrative when people say, when, when far right conservatives or pundits say, don't wear a mask, don't get the vaccine, it's dangerous. Isn't the current counter-narrative, don't listen to them, they're idiots. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a- I mean, that's sort of what it is. ACA is going to take things away from you. The The narrative is, don't listen to them, they're idiots. That's, that is the counter-narrative, but it's not an effective one, right? <laughs> I, I watched, um, now this is, this is, I people wondered why so many black men voted for Trump. And there were reasons, a lot of complicated reasons. But one is I watched on the ground as, as the Trump campaign was was speaking to black men for a year or two before the election. Um, advertisements that talked about, you know, just here's here's what we can do or what's not being done for you or something like that. Nobody was really paying attention. Um, and they knew they weren't going to win. The, they weren't they knew they weren't going to win the black male vote for sure. Um, but but at least there was an incentive. And so I would tell Democrats, look at the ads that the Trump campaign ran a year before the election um, and, and see that, that there, there were these subterranean efforts to at least talk to the other side, even if it wasn't, didn't mean you were going to win an election. I, I think there I think I think the Democrats just give up on talking. They to don't people. do Democrats. Should Democrats talk directly to white people specifically then? I mean, I mean, I think a lot of Democrats would be afraid that if they specifically geared a message directly to a race, it's got to be directly to a minority because speaking to only white voters would be damaging to them in a primary, right? They, it, would, it would make folks say, oh, you only care about white people. You don't care about minorities. Do Democrats need to specifically say, we got to talk directly to white folks? 
again, we're we're speculating here. This is I'm not a political scientist and I'm not a, a campaign advertiser. Um, but I but I will say that if you know what your ideals are and you know what you stand for, it's not like the Trump campaign was standing for anything else when it when it did that. So I, I think that in a way, I think that I don't think you lose anything by trying to rally more people to your side. That's how you win elections. And so I, I'm not saying side with racism. I'm not saying side with any of the narratives I'm talking about, but I, but I do think that you don't lose anything if you do everything you stand for already and stand for your ideals, and you explain to people who don't agree with you already how your policies might help them. I, I see that as, as not, um, not contradictory. This episode is sponsored by Apostrophe, and Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Prescription acne treatment really works, but it's hard to get. You got to take time off work. You got to go see a doctor, sit in line at the pharmacy for all your medications until Apostrophe came along. And Apostrophe makes it easy to see a board-certified dermatologist online where you'll get treated immediately and your medications will be delivered to your home. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin concerns and medical history. And just snap a few selfies, which we all know how to do, and your dermatologist will get back to you with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. And the best part is that Apostrophe offers the topical and the oral medications. And you know, those oral medications, they treat that stuff from the inside out. Um, and some of those things are tough to get, but they're also very, very effective. So the oral medications and the topical medications are available through Apostrophe. They um, treat acne, and they can also help you hit your other skincare goals, like reducing redness, wrinkles, which maybe I need to work on a little bit, and even dark spots. Um, we know it sucks sitting in the waiting room for hours, especially during COVID. So with Apostrophe, treatment is private convenient and fast. And, you know, you don't have to schedule an appointment. You don't have to go in when you got zits all over you and don't want people to see. You can do all that from the privacy of your home. It even comes with a cute postcard and stickers um, so you can personalize your prescription bottle and you don't need to go to the pharmacy during COVID to get your treatment. Um, and the medicine really feels like it's working right from the start. Get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash heck and use our code Heck, this code's only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash heck and click begin visit. Then use the code heck at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash heck. And use that code heck to get your dermatology visit for $15 off or look for the link in our show notes. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. So I want to talk about medicine. You're, you are, that's what's fascinating about you too, <laughs> is that you kind of have a foot in every single, in every single area. A lot of feet. Um, does, does, um, how does this pandemic end? I mean, I know you're not an infectious disease specialist, but um, how does this pandemic end? How do we get people to follow to take this vaccine, to um, follow the the guidelines. Uh, why is America falling behind other countries still um, when it comes to getting people to follow certain guidelines and restrictions? And is that a political issue? Is that a a cultural issue or a political issue? That, that is that the reason we're not able to do that, or do we just not have enough control over our people like they do in? in China. <laughs> we have all these fault lines that we've talked about. And if you just think about the pandemic, the pandemic forces tribalism. If you just talk to a stranger, you're putting yourself at risk because they could infect you. And so in a way, the nature of this pandemic forces people to only connect with people in their ideological pod. And so this particular pandemic is one that has reinforced the kind of tribal nature of the fissures we've been talking about in this conversation in America. It's, it's, it couldn't, we couldn't find a worse pandemic for the United States right now than this particular one. Um, the, the, the hard part about it is the only way you beat this pandemic is by thinking communally, thinking and trusting people outside of your ideology. And so I, I've, I've thought many times through this pandemic that I knew how it would end. And right now, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, we, we've got a vaccine. Um, there also are strains that are probably going to be um, that are, that the vac against which the vaccine is going to be less effective. And so there's no outcome of this pandemic uh, that that doesn't um, rest on our thinking communally and looking out for each other. In other words, if we still don't wear masks, 
if we still don't socially distance, even with the vaccine, we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to have endemic coronavirus and we're going to have endemic tribalism. And so I think really Biden is is trying to hold our country together in some pretty noble ways. And I'm certainly rooting for him. Um, but, but, but it's going to take people other than Biden recognizing that trusted voices from, from all sides coming together, which we don't have right now. Um, uh, Want to run on to want to move on to our um quick fire round. We ask people to write in. They know you're coming on this week, so we ask our listeners to write in. You can uh with questions for Dr. Metzel, you can write in for future guests on future weeks at Instagram uh, on Instagram. Sorry, look at me, I don't even know how to talk. <laughs> on Instagram at politicon.com. Oh damn it. On Instagram or Twitter at politicon. Mercy. Or you can email us at podcasts at politicon.com. I'm going to do that whole thing again because that was a mess. You can send us your questions on Instagram or Twitter at politicon, or you can email them to us at podcasts at politicon.com. Harold from Atlanta, Georgia asks, and I can't even read either, um, who is assigning people their opinions? Is it malicious? And is de-plat- are deplatforming efforts putting out the fires or are they putting them underground? Could you read the first part of that? Who is assigning? Who, who is this, I guess, in your book um, or at some pl- point you've discussed um, people being assigned their opinions and Harold's asking by whom? Is it malicious? Um, and then his second question was, are deplatforming efforts putting out fires or putting them underground? Well, in terms of who is assigning, I, I, I wouldn't even use that, um, that language for the research I do. I mean, in, the research I do talks about how cultural identities are, are historical. They've developed regionally and geographically. They've developed in communities and families. Um, and, and, and there are not just bad things about that, right? I mean, the, the, I'm from Missouri. I've spent a lot of time in rural Missouri. I live in Tennessee. There are many great things about rural white communities. They can be generous and, and communal. They can uh, be very, very selfless. Uh, there are many, many important things about, about that. And, and so, I, you know, what frustrates me is that I feel like we've got a political system right now that reinforces playing to people's worse angels, not, that, not their better angels. And, and so, um, you know, who is assigning acts like it's just coming from the outside. And I, I don't hold that, but I would say that there are that there are platforms that are playing to people's deep-seated anxieties in ways that make them more tribal and that benefit financially by having their support base be more tribal. And so part of it again is I just would ask Harold to look at our political system and just take a take a check of, of what um, what's the benefit of cooperation versus competition? There's much more benefit for competition. And imagine what would it what would it look like if we instead had a system where people were rewarded for cooperating, which is exactly the opposite of, of what we have now. Um, deplatforming, I guess, he means like having Trump come off of Twitter. <laughs> is that is that? What oh, that I'm means? assuming the same. Yeah, I'm assuming the same thing. Either him, not just Trump, but but quite a few people have been banned from from Twitter, and obviously Parler was taken down as well. You know, again, it's, it's funny, but social media plays exactly into what I'm saying. Social media. Can you imagine a social media if people were rewarded for empathy? <laughs> you know, I know we don't have that. It's, it seems ridiculous. <laughs> it's Could a, you imagine a news network that was only for good news? Yeah. Either? I mean, that's, <laughs> it doesn't get people to pay. It doesn't get people to show up. <laughs> yeah. So it's not just it's not just about who's not allowed to talk. It's also the conversations that we that we need to have that we're, that we're not having. And so again, you know, the, the social social media runs by algorithm. Again, this is not my expertise, except to say that you're rewarded for the negative algorithm. But if you had like a Delta frequent flyer miles program and you got frequent flyer miles for, for, for bipartisanship, for understanding somebody else's point of view, something like that, like we need a better algorithm for how we communicate with each other, particularly during a pandemic when Again, we're all in our pods at mistrusting each yeah. other. And so part of the issue is the algorithm. Well, Taylor, Taylor, I hope I'm saying your name right, Taylor, from Detroit asks a question that goes along those lines. She asks, social media is filled with charismatic personalities amassing followings. Isn't this the recipe for cults or worse? Social media is supposed to be the salt 
or the pepper. It's not supposed to be the meal, <laughs> but right now, think yeah. about it. We're, we're, we that's own- a lovely lawn. I love that. <laughs> I mean, right now we, we own, that's all we have because we're social distance and because as much as you want to go, but, we, but, but social media was a problem before COVID. Don't you think? I mean, oh, it, was, for it, was, sure. it not just started becoming a problem this year. It has been the meal for people long before it needed to be, right? Well, it's it's how we learn about people who are different from us, but so much of social media functions like a lot of media, which is we construct straw man others and then we we pinata we we, we pinata them. So we, we it's never like let's understand the other person's point of view. Um, you know, it's it's all about um constructing the other as as a, as an enemy and then attacking it. And so Part of the issue, again, is there's no public square right now. And that's why this pandemic is so dangerous is because the places where you could go to kind of cool it down a little bit in the real world and not not just in social media, but just think about your life. You know, you might be a Republican or Democrat, but then you go to the workplace and you meet people who are different from you in your office or around the water cooler. You go to the gym or your sports team, whatever. We don't have any of those public spaces right now. So there's there's no counter. I agree with you. It's always been a problem. But right now. It's dangerously a problem because it's the only way that people are engaging with people who who they who they might disagree with. Okay, two more. Letitia from Houston, Texas, wants to know why is QAnon so white? <laughs> well, again, I don't study QAnon, um, and, and, and so I and I really haven't done any work on, on QAnon. But but um, but again, earlier in our conversation, we were talking about um, you know what part of it is is about grievance narratives, feeling like you're under attack. Um, but, but and maybe also QAnon certainly, and, and again, not knowing anything about it, ties into what are otherwise core beliefs for a lot of people. In other words, like pedophilia, things like that, like people uh, kind of ideologies that people are not willing to compromise on because they're very deeply held moral or religious um, beliefs. And so it, it seems to be a kind of perversion of, of some of that process. But but again, it really goes back to the question before, which is normally there's a check, a kind of counterbalance to that, which is like everybody else in the world walking around on the street, and we don't have that right now. And so if you're in front of your computer on Twitter all day, that, that's kind of all you get. And so this is, again, it's a volatile moment. And really, um, I, I guess I, I just personally think how much of the extremism in, in, in the country and in the world right now is a result of the pandemic. And we, we kind of don't think about it that way, but we really, those two things go hand in hand and how urgent it is for us to, to, to get a handle on the pandemic in order to get a handle on, on some of the extremism. Okay. And last, and Mindy from Las Vegas asked a question that I'm going to choose because I am dying to know the answer of it to it myself. <laughs> Mindy from Las Vegas asks, I can get my gambling here, but I need my music in Nashville. When do you think live music will be back? I miss it. I miss it, man, so much. You know, again, it's we, we got to all work together here. I mean, there's so many things we're missing out. I miss sports. I miss. I mean, you've mentioned the Bills before. I'm no offense at Chiefs fan, and the Bills did play a bad game. Well, I'm, I'm not a Bills fan either. I just, that was the one. Come on, I'm gay. I don't know sports. You give me a break. But, but, <laughs> the one that came to mind. But, but, but I mean, we we miss all those things. I mean, you know, I miss a good mosh pit like the next guy. I really do, and. And, and so we, we've got a, we've got this, we've got, uh, to be honest, uh, we've got a, a hard couple months uh, ahead of us here. We've got to really, we've got to stick together on this. Um, but I, I miss that. I miss that. I miss live music. And, and, and the hard part is it's not like, it's not like there's a fire outside. It's like you, everything looks like it's just the way we left it. It's just the, the fire is in these teeny little particles. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'm, it makes me very nostalgic because I, I live in, you know, I live basically on Music Row in, in, in Tennessee, and and I, and I'm believe me, I miss it every day. I look out my window, so hopefully soon. <laughs> well, hopefully soon because you know I got to work too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, your book, Dying of Whiteness: How the Politics of Racial Resentment Is Killing America's Heartland. We are the, this podcast is sponsored oftentimes by Blinkist, which is a incredible service that lets people get a. Um, a, a synopsis and get the main points of nonfiction books. However, um, I have admitted in the past to using them sometimes for guests, but this is not one of those books that I have used it for. This is a book that people need to get and read in full on their own. I really, I really do recommend uh, 
folks, if you're listening, this is probably one of the best, and, and, and I'm speaking as a Southerner who has been surrounded my entire life, been surrounded through my political campaign by people who are like those folks you talked to in Missouri and Tennessee, and I think you went to Kansas too, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the, the, I've been surrounded in North Carolina by exactly the folks who you talked to in this book, and if if you're interested at all in this subject, which I know our listeners are because they wrote in a lot for you, um, that this is the, you need to pick this book up and read it because I really do think you've got you really kind of tapped into um, in your interviews the psyche of a lot of the folks who I know in the rural parts of North Carolina. So um, again, people who are listening, um, dying of whiteness: how the politics of racial resentment is killing America's heartland. Um, I. I Really recommend you pick it up. But before we let you go, um, I want to ask you, how the heck are we going to get along? <sighs> I mean, we, we face a common enemy right now. The The common enemy is is the pandemic. We, we have so much to gain by by working together to to stop this this killer that's killed half a million of our fellow citizens. And so really, hopefully we, we start to we start to figure this out. I mean, really. We have so much to gain right now by by working together. And as you mentioned, I, I hope I didn't stereotype people in my book. There are a lot of remarkable things about all communities across this country about kind of how they how they live and die. And and and, and so in a way, it's, it's it's it just makes me frustrated that you only get to know people on on, on social media. The, the other seems so evil. When again, we we have so much to gain by learning more about each other. And, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, thank you so much. Um, again, one more time, just in case you didn't write it down the first time I said it, you need to write it down this time, Dying of Whiteness. Um, you can look it up by just using Dying of Whiteness, but the subtitle, How the How- Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Um, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, thank everyone who's listening for joining us this week, and we'll be back next week with another episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? <laughs>